house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. so much, David, and good morning. Although we're in London, so it's afternoon here. But regardless of the time of day, it's a moment that each of these nominees will never forget. Absolutely. Dick Poop. Dick Pope. For Mr. Turner. Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Bus podcast, the only podcast where the mountains live through the screams of seagulls, where the whales can't live because they're gentle people. Every week on This Head Oscar Bus, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy, except this episode, our bonus episode, we're here to talk about the class of 2020, the This Head yeah. Oscar Buzz uh, eligible movies that, once again, we're going to wait a year before we talk about any of these. Um, right. Can't imagine we would be super quick to rehash um, yeah. the year that was COVID. There's so no, there's maybe no put cats in, on in this, in this bunch. I feel like. Yeah. Skimbleshanks but, uh, is as not, always, uh, demanding I'm, his presence. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm your host, Chris File. Here, as always, with one of the muses for my hometown, uh, Joe Reed. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, hey, hey. The funny thing is about class of 2020 is this is sort of similar to our Toronto episode where we're just like, what are we even going to talk about? It's such a weird year. It's such a lean year. Nothing's going mm-hmm. on. And then like, sure as anything, we come up with a list and it's just like, yeah, it's a couple dozen movies that, you know, well, uh, had buzz in somewhere or I think it's also kind another. of representative that. The Oscars really kind of, I guess, congealed around a certain number of movies. That's why most of the Best Picture nominees have six nominations, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, that's part of it, right? Like, I think there's some movies that did better than they normally would have. I think there's some movies that would have done even better if it was a normal year. And, you know, they could have played to crowds and theaters and such like movies that would have benefited from that type of experience versus everybody watching it at home um but yeah we did actually come up with a decent number of movies i also want to commend our listeners too because we immediately had people jumping into our mentions saying no first cow it's one of those movies where you know you don't want to like shit on it or anything so like yeah thank you listeners for uh understanding that part of it but at the same time i think there is a case to be made for first cow and like the only thing about yeah. that is if you were gonna go into talking about first cow you'd kind of have to talk about how it did have legitimate potential yes. and yes. some oscar buzz but probably only because it was a reduced COVID year. So, like, that would be (laughs) the episode to maybe talk a little bit about that. And I can't imagine us wanting to do that (laughs) in a year's time or so. Our COVID year, right? Well, I think if that's the case with a lot of these movies, actually, where it's like, I look at a lot of these movies, and it's just like, we wouldn't have, we would have sort of dismissed their chances a lot sooner were it 
a normal year with a normal slate of big studio movies out there. But I think because of the limitations of what 2020 gave us in terms of films, the number of films, and also the kinds of films that were released, then we, I think, took a longer look at other things and was just like, oh, does, you know, X and Y uh, have a shot? Something like I Care A Lot, which gets a Golden Globe for Rosamund Pike, or... um you know, like, does the Mauritanian have the same kind of effect if it has to struggle through, you know, a dozen other big movies at the end of the year trying to come out? Does, you know, the buzz for Michelle Pfeiffer and French Exit, like, persist for as long as it did in a year where there are, like, you know, a half dozen other bigger contenders for Best Actress to talk about? And in a way, it lets us talk about more and different kinds of movies than we normally would be talking about, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also sort of like gives the year a little bit of a, you know, a hallmark uh, all its own. Yeah. I think it's also would have been shaped because there's a small handful of movies that probably, if it was a normal year, wouldn't have been ready for right. the full like theatrical release. Some of them were held like to my understanding Judas and the Black Messiah was ready. People saw it in the fall. Yeah. But they like were extremely cherry picked. Like only a handful of people did get to see it, but people saw it. Um, right. But like uh, United States versus Billy Holiday wasn't ready until the very, very last minute. So that's like the type of thing that could have been held for the next yeah. year, even. Yeah, um, totally. And I also think that there's certain, like I said, there's certain movies that because it was reduced down or like, because uh, there's a longer time for people to sit with these movies and less competition. I think something like sound Mm. of metal really benefited from that. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. I'm not sure that that could have not to say anything of the quality of the movie, but because it is a smaller movie and like the type of intensity that like Oscar usually rewards with acting nominations, but not best picture nomination. uh, That's a movie that I think really benefited this year that maybe we, yeah, the trajectory of a movie like sound of metal is really interesting where it was a movie that had played Toronto in 2019 to not much of a response. Like there wasn't a negative Mm -hmm. response, but it just like, wasn't, it was very quiet. It was a very, you know, it was there. I remember noticing it on uh, the lineup there and I had considered seeing it because Riz Ahmed is a really interesting actor. And I think some the people who did see it seem to have good things to say about it, but it was nothing like a uh, sort of a groundswell word of mouth. Gotta go see Uh this movie kind of a thing and the fact that it was able to sort of continue to build a buzz when it did eventually get released during 2020 and it had that space to sort of be a you know for lack of a better term and better you know for lack of bigger movies it was one of the bigger movies of Mm -hmm. uh of 2020 because of that and then once you saw it once i saw it i was just like well this is really it's it's doesn't seem like it would be you know up oscars alley and yet like it really is in terms of the kind of story that's being told and the performance at its center and all that stuff and it obviously really you know caught on in a big way to the tune of you know six oscar nominations and a probably a win somewhere like best sound um yeah 
I think that's very um, probable, especially in a year without blockbusters. That's yeah. very probable. Yeah. But again, that's really cool to do like craft categories in a year without all your big blockbusters is, you know, a really, and even, and even Tenet, which is like the blockbuster that got released this year, didn't really like overwhelm the craft categories like it honestly could have. It probably could have gotten another, you know, three or four nominations in those categories. And Absolutely. it didn't. So it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's very interesting for as much as this Oscar year seems in some ways muted. It's also, you know, more fascinating than most. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to mention like, because of the year being what it was like, Something like Trial of Chicago 7, which was supposed to be released by Paramount, got sold to Netflix. So, like, what would have changed for that movie if it wasn't a Netflix movie, if it was a studio that probably could put even more attention around it? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And now it's... It got released. I remember when it got released, it was one of the sort of handful of movies that we talked about as being a possible front runner because of pedigree and subject matter and things like that. And that, I think, is really where you saw the slimming of options this year is there's a lot of movies that were talked about in terms of it can get some nominations, maybe it can show up in an acting category, maybe, you know, a a screenplay category, something like that. But the movies that I think were plausibly sold as this could win are very, like, there's a very small handful of them this year, and they Mm -hmm. really didn't change much. It was Trial of Chicago 7, it was Mank, it was eventually... People came around to the idea of Nomadland. You were very early on on that one, but I think uh, I I know I was one of the ones who was like pretty skeptical about whether Nomadland could t- could stay sort of ahead of the other movies at the end of the year. And I think now I think I was more high on the possibilities of Minari early on, and I think that movie really now is in a position where mm-hmm. it's maybe running in second place to Nomadland. If I were to rank the best picture nominees in yeah, terms of their chances. I think Minari has a threat stands as a threat to actually win best picture. I mean like yeah. it's partly the preferential ballot thing of that lineup of movies. I have a hard time seeing a lot of people putting it low on their ballot right. um versus some of the other ones even Nomadland. I can see anybody putting them low. Right. I also think Promising Young Woman would probably not be a movie that we would be talking about um, in relation to Oscar. They've probably run their campaign better than anybody this season because, like, that was originally supposed to be April. They could have, whether in April or in the summer, you know, put that movie out just as they did on premium on demand. But, like, I think they were smart to hold that movie until like towards the end of the schedule when there was not i mean like there was competition sure um for eyeballs but like they positioned that movie and put it out to people like right at the time where getting people talking about it probably yielded a better awards run than they would have otherwise um yeah covid year or not they, they just timed that movie incredibly well to get the result that they did. I, I, I always, you know, I take a step back to last January. You know, Sundance 
where Minari and Promising Young Woman both played. And Nomadland is sort of far in the distance. And we were all really high on Chloe Zhao as a, you know, really interesting filmmaker because she's got both this small thing with Frances McDormand coming up and this Marvel movie coming up uh, was supposed to be released at the end of 2000. And so she was a really interesting story. But I think compared to the Marvel movie, you sort of wondered how small Nomadland was going to be. And then Mm -hmm. something like Mank was a contender from a year out. I remember when I was on Vanity Fair's podcast and we're doing our year ahead kind of a thing. Um, Mank was definitely one of the movies that I talked about because it's Fincher. It's, you know, Netflix had just had such a success with the Irishman. It's a movie about making movies. It's, you know, all these, it ticks all the boxes. And so it's interesting that like, we've ended up with this mix of things that, you know, a couple of things that were definitely foreseeable and a couple of things that like, if you would have said at Sundance, that promising young woman would have been a best picture, best director, best actress, best screenplay nominee at the Oscars. I would have been real incredulous. And yeah. Well, I mean, I think at that time people thought that best case scenario for the movie would be best actress. And like that seemed plausible still, even when it was an April release. Yeah. It would have but. seemed to me along the lines of best actress campaigns for Tony Collette for Hereditary, Florence Pugh for Midsommar, like things like that, which are like Promising Young Woman isn't horror that way, but like it's real stylized and really, um, you know, the mix of genres at play there are really interesting, but not the kinds of things that Oscar usually goes for. Like that kind of. Uh, aggressive dark comedy kind of a thing mm-hmm. i don't it's still a surprise to me it's still such a surprise to me that it's such a success and i'm very happy about it because i really liked that movie but um it has the benefit of being one of the few movies that was getting a lot of conversation and a lot of attention too so i think that definitely helped and yeah. i think that goes back to the timing of when they released the movie they did that very smartly to yeah. kind of capitalize on uh yeah, uh, for sure. You know, a less crowded year. Yeah, definitely. Do you have anything that you think we would have talked about in a regular year for an episode? I have what? one that got like several nominations. I'm still yeah. Kind oh, of so so something that, that did get nominated that you think if it were the full year would have gotten blanked and we would have uh, been talking about it. It now. would be a this hot Oscar buzz movie. I definitely yeah. think that would be news of the world. Oh, when yeah. that mo- when people started seeing that movie, nobody was talking about it. I feel like that's the movie that kind of benefited most in that it was, pr- I mean, somewhere between ninth and twelfth in the best picture ranking, probably. Yeah, considering yeah. it got all those nominations. But I think I just saw a lack of enthusiasm for that movie and the kind of categories that it's getting nominated in. Like you talked about with Tenet, right, where you could easily see it just showing up in those categories because there's like not blockbuster movies or there's not these right. like big canvas movies. I kind of think uh, News of the World is the one that benefited from that for a movie I that don't... doesn't really have a lot of passion behind it. I don't disagree except for the fact that it does seem like the kind of movie that could have just shown up in best cinematography and you were just like, huh, 
you know how cinematography will every once in a while just throw sure. in a movie there where it's just like and obviously like Darius Wolski is a very well-respected cinematographer um but yeah you're not wrong I think that is but a movie I think we that... would have gotten more movies that could have also been that type of thing that would have taken that spot you know that like even silence like there's a limited pocket of people that love that movie including the two of us and it shows up in cinematography and it's like huh but it still makes sense yeah yeah no i agree i think you're right i think you're definitely right um i also think i mean it's not the same thing i think it would have gotten the acting nominations but like Something, the fact that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was able to establish establish itself early as an Oscar contender, I think owes a lot to the fact that the landscape wasn't overly crowded at that point, and there were there was no reason to sort of dismiss it out of hand because it was a stage adaptation by George C. Mm-hmm. Wolf. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like Fences is also uh, August Wilson as adaptation, obviously, but like it's Denzel Washington who is like as Oscary as as can be. And I think ultimately the Chadwick Boseman Viola Davis performances make the case for themselves anyway and would have definitely been contenders. But mm-hmm. the fact that it came incredibly close to a Best Picture nomination, that it gets nominations in uh, costume and production design and makeup hairstyling and things like that. Um, it's very deserving. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. Like I really, really loved it. And I think in a more traditional year, there's the danger that people would have been like, Oh, that's not gonna, it's not going to be a contender beyond just the acting. So we're not going to consider it in any of these other categories. And I'm glad that it did get considered in the other Mm -hmm. categories. And Netflix went hard for it too. Like Netflix really, like I know they were very much on front street, especially about Anne Roth and the costumes and it ultimately worked out for them. Oh, I I think she's going to win for costumes. Like, I think that's, that's uh, going to happen. Um, I mean, like it's hard for any one distributor to handle so many movies in the Oscar race like Netflix had. And like, I think that's part of it. And I feel like I'm about to talk out of both sides of my mouth here, but like (laughs) Oscar doesn't have, uh, I don't think that they respect things that are like so clearly adapted from plays, even though they can make them incredibly compelling. Like Ma Rainey's black bottom is, Mm -hmm. um, but then, like, to transition just a little bit into, like, the movie that I think would have gotten a better tally if it had been in front of audiences rather than in front of people in their homes, you know, where it can have, like, a splashier yeah. festival response. I do think that's One Night in Miami. Like, at, like, TIFF, One Night in Miami would have played through the roof if it was at, like, The Princess of Wales or something. Um, I think... That feels like the movie to me that the missing ingredient was a, like, crowd response. You know, the type of thing that you can't, that you feel in a room and you can't just get from, like, people's tweets, right? Yes. I hear what you're saying for that. I was maybe a little more lukewarm on One Night in Miami in general than most people were. I Mm -hmm. really loved the performances. I was would have probably gotten behind a nomination for Kingsley Benadire and something. Absolutely. 
I think Leslie Odom Jr. is good. Also, probably it's not going to be among my top five supporting actors, but like it's a really, really good cast. I it to me it never really made the leap to being a sort of transcendent film for me beyond just sort of a collection of its best performances. But I think you're right in that a movie like that could have really benefited from a uh, a big, buzzy, groundswelly word of mouth. It did play TIFF, but it didn't get the benefit of sort right. of the the best of what TIFF can do for you in terms of getting everybody talking, giving everybody, for lack of a better term, buzzing about your film. Even though I think it's like, it's very much like, and it got criticisms, a lot of them that I think are unfair towards it. Um, it. You know, it got the thing of people saying it's so clearly adapted from a play. But I do think there's a part of it where that movie is so much positions itself as a crowd pleaser. And like, I yeah. think it's underwhelming nomination tally shows, well, there weren't crowds for this movie to play to it's playing to people in their houses you know like yeah here's my question to you is in a normal year does borat's subsequent movie film seem even more like a uh like not really even like like uh, not exactly a film like a like an amazon sort of like brand extension for the borat character and does does it get nominations in a normal year? I really think it doesn't. But I have been anti-Borat all year. So I'm I mean, wondering how much of my perspective is That's part of the question, because Amazon bought that movie. They produced it in secret, and then, unless I am wrong, uh, Amazon paid like $20 million or something for it. Um, so it's not like it was produced by Amazon. So it yeah. could have gone to an actual distributor too, and had just a completely different life. Right. Um, I don't know. I think in the year of 2020, I think the whole Rudy Giuliani part of that movie gave it a certain credibility that I'm to people that I'm still kind of wrapping my head around. Cause I don't, I don't love the movie as much as some people do. And I certainly don't think otherwise aside from like the impact of that scene or whatever and Maria Bakalova being great I don't know yeah. if it feels as smooth as the first one did like so much of it felt staged um, yeah. and that was my problem with it I don't I mean I think maybe it's not a screenplay nominee but I do kind of wonder if Maria Bakalova is still a nominee see I think the other way around I think it's Wait, did you say you think it would be a screenplay nominee, but not Bakalova? I don't. Even though the first one was, but like that was yeah. probably the only way Oscar was going to recognize the first one at the time. Where I think Bakalova doesn't get see nominated. Them. Yeah. I, I think I think it's it's one of those things where it's like what's plausible, right? And I think because it was such a non-traditional year when that movie came out and people really loved her and people were like Maria Bakalova Oscar. And I think in a normal year it would have stayed as a joke. And because this was such a weird year, there was that sort of, you know, uh, you know, just kidding unless kind of a thing about her where it's just like, (laughs) Oh, like ha 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 Maria Bakalova. But like, but it could happen because what else is actually, you know, happening this year. And I think that she, you know, really benefited from that. 
I do think, I mean, like, it's Borat, so it's raunchier than some of these examples. But I do think historically there are examples of, like, comedy ingenues breaking through with Oscar. Mm-hmm. Like, even people like yeah, Goldie Hawn. you're right. Right? Like, you're right. Or Mar- Marissa Tomei, even. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I, I guess... How I'm dare higher. you, first of all, compare my beloved Mona Lisa Vito to anybody in Borat's subsequent movie film? <laughs> I... I'm so mad at you right now. When you catch up to the movie, I'm sure you'll be impressed by her. Whatever, I'll see it eventually. I gotta. I have to. I've, I've have boxed, to. My, boxed myself into this corner. Um, let's talk about the ones that didn't make it, though. Let's uh, let's let's transition into yeah. our class of 2020. Again, more movies than you think. <laughs> our, <laughs> more uh, movies than you think. Um, we always say we're going to wait a year. Maybe we wait a little bit longer this year, A, so we don't have to talk about COVID, but also the Oscar calendar shifted. So yes. instead of January, maybe we'll wait until yeah. April of next year. Listen, we're going to we're gonna get into it because Chris has come up with some, uh, has regimented our discussion really, really well and put us into some categories. And when we talk about the first movie that we want to do from this class... I have some definite opinions. And <laughs> we'll uh, okay, so uh, we like a category here. These aren't fully analog to the previous class of whatever uh, years that we've done before. But just to, like, streamline us along, we're already pushing half-hour limit on a bonus episode. Our first category is the It Tastes Like Ashes prize for the happiest miss, the movie that we didn't that we were happy to not see nominated because we didn't think it deserved to be nominated. Yes. What Chris was Take your pick for this? Um, I mean, there's quite a few things that I could there say are. here. Yes. Um, and like some of them maybe were more serious contenders than others. Um, I think it's gotta be the little things for me <laughs> with Jared Leto being terrible. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, getting dangerously close to an Oscar nomination. Here's the here's the thing about the little thi- little things has the funniest awards trajectory to me yep. because yep. yep it was always planned as a January movie. It exactly. never moved nope. on the calendar. The, the season moved the around it. This yes. neighborhood grew up like, around it. it. Yeah. The Globe nomination and the SAG nomination for Jared Leto to me is only about timing it's when people were watching it when they were voting and yeah. he was doing press for it so like he made to himself me, available for that movie and like yeah. it it's a horrible movie that just so happened to be getting seen at the right time um it's such an like, object lesson in perspective though when we talk mm-hmm. about movies that have Oscar buzz. And it really is like, this is why I'm always obsessed with the notion. I've talked to you about, to you about this before. And maybe I mentioned it in the podcast, my grand idea that I ever ever get a giant grant to perform a science experiment. It's I will. And I said this before the COVID year. And now this is really given this a, a different sheen, but I wanted to like, go away to an island for a year and only get screeners of the movies uh, or whatever, like with like a screening room so I can see them, you know, projected or whatever. 
but see them in complete isolation of the conversations happening around them and the reviews happening around them, and then emerge and see whether my assessment of what are the major films, what are the major performances, what are the big awards contenders, what did well, what did not do well, what people liked, what people didn't like, whether my predictions for that would line up with the reality, or whether because I'm completely devoid of the context of how everybody else is talking about the movies, if I'm totally up a creek about things. And I think something like The Little Things really tells you how much context is important. Because Mm -hmm. if this movie gets released in a regular year in January, it's forgotten by February. And yes. And there's no way, and it's like, and it does feel a little Emperor's New Clothes, where all of a sudden now, because this movie, because the Oscar, you know, eligibility window shifted around it, now all of a sudden it's being released in what is essentially the, like, uh, November, December of the new uh, awards year. And now people are looking at it, and they're just like, oh, yes, well, this is an Oscar winner giving a very committed, you know, villain performance or whatever. And it's just like... And the Golden Globe thing happened, and you're just like, LOL, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Nocturnal Animals, ha ha ha, aren't they, you know, so corrupt and, and ridiculous? And then the SAG thing happened, and I was just like, oh my god. Like, first of all, everybody watched their screener of this, which I get, because it's like, in a land of, you know, sad indies, and now all of a sudden it's just like, a Denzel Washington Cops and Criminals movie? Like, sign me up. But like, but it's bad, and it's bad, and he's he's not the worst performance in the film because Rami Malek, Rami is, Malek there is doing whatever the hell he's doing. I don't even think Jared Leto is particularly terrible, but like it is not close to the realm of what you would nominate somebody for for an Oscar. And it's just so weird that like that little shift in perspective, all of a sudden, people were like, "Oh, well, now we consider this uh, for this type of thing," and now. You know, a lot of people it, voted for it. Maybe it wouldn't be so much of a talking point if it wasn't for the SAG nomination, because like Globe's gonna Globe, I guess. Yeah, and like it, it wasn't on an island um, no. when the Globe nominations came out in terms of weird things that the Globes did on top of yes. them, all of the controversy that they've rightfully had this season. Um, but then the SAG right. happens and it legitimizes it in a way yes. that we yes. actually have to start thinking about it. And I was so angry. <laughs> I was yes. so angry that I had to take yep. that movie seriously. And I was even yep. more angry when I saw it and it was bad. And I felt bad for Denzel being sidelined in this bad movie. Um, Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Um, Glad it's not nominated. You know what movie deserved the fate that... Not the ultimate fate, but deserved the kind of attention that the little things got is uh, Invisible Man. If Invisible Man and the little things had swapped release dates and Invisible Man had gotten viewed through the lens of, oh, this is, you know, something that now we consider for awards. And if Elizabeth Moss had been nominated for Golden Globe and SAG, that would have been justice. We see that movie differently. You didn't like um, it. I mean, I Invisible Man it. is a conceivable this had Oscar buzz movie because, like, it was shortlisted for score? Was it shortlisted for visual effects? I don't think it was shortlisted for visual effects. 
Or maybe it, it was, was and it just didn't get score. the nomination, obviously. Um, it should have been nominated for visual effects. The visual effects not only are fantastic in that movie, but are so incredibly effective in terms of the best parts of that movie. Like We also really... see that differently, because that oh, shot God. where she's getting dragged around the room is one of the crunchiest visual effects. Nope. It's so in, good. And, and that's not even the scene that I'm talking about, but that is also a really fantastic scene in that movie. I'm oh, talking I think it about... looks like dog shit. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. I love that movie. I think it's great. And I think it deserved uh, the attention that the little things got. I will die on that. That hill. scene is when the movie lost me because the VFX looks so bad. Nope. Nope. <laughs> what is your pick for the movie uh, for uh, It Tastes Like Ashes, the movie your happiest is not on? So I had two written down. One of them was The Little Things, so I'm glad that you talked about that. My other one is Cherry, the Tom Holland uh, <laughs> Russo Brothers film, Cherry, which... Did you actually the... spend two and a half hours of your life watching that movie? I didn't, and I'm and I'm thankful. I did end up watching The Little Things, so I feel like I got sort of snookered on that one. Um <laughs> Cherry, I was waiting. I waited it out to see if it would get the nomination, and it didn't. I was happy. I was happy, but like, and I will see it eventually because I see movies. But like, in the limited time that I have now, the idea of seeing a two and a half hour movie that most people I was seeing didn't like, and about sounded just like a real fucking bummer. In addition to being bad, but also just like kind of a slog, and. In the week or two leading up to the nominations, it really seemed like it was cresting towards something. Mm. Like it was going to get something. I really thought that it was going to show up somewhere, and I didn't know where. I'm going to seriously push back on that, because Cherry is one of those movies where it's like, just because you say that you are campaigning for a movie doesn't make it real. (laughs) Like, I mean, that is not a movie that had any legitimate Oscar buzz. Oh, I disagree. I think it did have oh. an Oscar buzz. I do, I do. It was cresting. It was cresting Apple its bought attention because at the they right want time. to be in bed with the Russo brothers. That's not because they wanted to actually push it for awards. Yeah, but the people who are voting for awards also want to be in bed with the Russo brothers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, that's pro- that's probably fair. I I would be hesitant to do an episode on Cherry. That's what I'll say for the same reasons that I would be hesitant to do an episode on music because just because music yeah. got nominated for a Globe doesn't mean it had actual awards buzz. Like, there's a if, reason we were um, aghast at those nominations for music. Sia's music. Yeah, but you could say the same for The Prom, and we're going to probably end up doing an episode on The Prom just because I think it'll be a fun episode, and I think we won't do one on music because I don't think it will be a fun episode, and I think that's the determining factor for me. Well, The Prom's different because it's Meryl, there was an original song. Yeah. Yeah, but yes, I think that's right. I think music is was definitely never, even when it got the Globe and Globe nomination, it was never a threat for an Oscar nomination, but... If something gets a Golden Globe nomination, it makes it fair game for us. I'm not saying we're going to do music because, again, I don't think that's a fun episode, given everything else around it. But um, I think if something gets a Golden Globe nomination, if something gets a SAG nomination, if something you know shows up on like NBR Top 10, that makes it fair game. And it's it's then up to us whether we want to do it or not. That is my feeling. Okay. I, I, uh, I will uh, I will follow your lead on that, though I am with you that I am happy that Cherry did not get nominated for anything, because uh, yeah. I didn't want to have to watch it. Agreed. Agreed. Moving on to the next category, which we are calling the You're a Really Good Aeronaut Prize for the movie that should be nominated. Not to I'm say really that the aeronaut, aeronaut should have been nominated, but, you know, we love our good aeronauts out there. 
Listen. What's the what is mad respect for this? Mad respect to our good aeronauts. So I have a few actually. Um, I'll start with just one, and then I'll see what yours uh, are. But um, I want to mention "Let Them All Talk" because that was going to be mine. <laughs> I think I think Warner Brothers screwed that one up early, and then were not mm-hmm. able to dig themselves out of a hole. I think for some reason that sort of mystifies me. Warner Brothers just decided this is just going to be an HBO Max movie. We're not going to consider it in the realm of awards, really. We're not going to push it at all. And it's probably, it's one of those Soderbergh movies that's just sort of small and uh, like High Flying Bird or something like that, where even if it's good, it's not going to really garner a lot of attention. And we're not going to, you know, throw good money after bad or whatever. And... I don't think they knew what they had on their hands. And I think that's a problem because once people started watching the movie, they really loved it. And then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, you have a movie by an Oscar winning director that people are loving that stars Meryl Streep. And you can't even pull a Golden Globe nomination out of this. And it's like, and it's a comedy. Because they didn't try. Because they didn't try because they didn't have it within their their you know conception that this was an oscar movie and again in a regular year i could understand that more but in a covid year where so few big things came out and you have a steven soderbergh meryl street movie that people are really liking even if it's strange even if it's you know lo-fi and improv and whatever it's kind of insane and it like takes the whole movie for it to really reveal what it's doing what the movie is ultimately about like right but it's also but like, so fucking funny. Like, yeah, yes. Candace Bergen should be walking away with supporting actress trophies for that movie. Um, th- here's the thing: we know Soderbergh doesn't want to play the game to the extent which, like, right. it's written in his HBO Max contract that he doesn't want to play the game. By the way, Steven Soderbergh, who's producing the Oscars, <laughs> that was doesn't want to play the Oscars. Game. Yeah. Um, I don't know how long he was you know, uh, contracted to do the Oscars for that it would have really affected this movie. But the other thing, I forget the backwards and forwards of what the rules are now that the Emmys say, if you provide screeners for Academy voters, you can't be considered for the Emmys. Or if it's Oscar, I, I normally know this, or if it's Oscar says you campaign for the Emmys, you can't be nominated for an Oscar. Did this campaign for the Emmys? Yeah. Huh? I did this campaign I, because for now the I think the movie is screwed out of the Emmys too. Oh, I mean I never thought I don't I don't think it was even in their plans to campaign it for the Emmys either. Exactly. I think they were just assuming that they were just like this was not going to be something that they were going to spend their time on. Yeah, uh, but when I the think Emmys the Oscars nominate Ellen Burstyn for a 10 second long performance in no, I know. Brown or whatever yeah. it is, like yeah. they could decide to, for themselves to vote for let them all talk, but if it's not eligible for Emmys now. Right. Right. No, and that, yeah, and it's, they just, you know, they screwed it up from the break, and it's too bad. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating, mystifying. But again, even if Soderbergh doesn't want to campaign, again, you have Meryl Streep, you have Lucas Hedges, you have Candace Bergen, you have Diane Weiss, like, you have a lot of people who you can, uh, you know, campaign with, and... You know, there are options. You have options. And also, it's just like, just let people see the movie. And then, you know, whatever. Just 
<sighs> yeah. Frustrating. All right. So you were going to pick Let Them All Talk. Did you have a runner up? Uh, well, I mean, like, probably my tie, actually, because this is a movie that I like even better. It's just, like, there was absolutely nothing done with Let Them All Talk. In this movie, they did try. They should have tried harder. Um, it's the 40-year-old version, uh, Rada Blank's, um, Netflix comedy that is one of my favorite movies of the year, the funniest movie of the year. Like, original screenplay is probably the most competitive category at the Oscars, but it also deserves to be in that competition. I was so happy when she was nominated at BAFTA for Best Actress. Um, I just love this movie. Like, I think probably, even though there are movies that I like more than them, like First Cow, I think the movies that I'm probably going to watch, rewatch the most from 2020 are the 40-year-old version and Let Them All Talk. Um, yeah. It's just so no, good. You're right. I it's hope really good. if you haven't caught up to it, you absolutely should. It it's could on have Netflix. been a nominee for Best Original Song. Poverty you know Porn is the song I wanted that they it. campaigned. You know I wanted that Best Original Song nomination. As I said, after Barb and Star, <laughs> Go to Vista Del Mar came out, I said the only truly deserving Best Original Song lineup this year would have been two songs from Eurovision, two songs from Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar, and a uh, uh, white man with a white black man with a black woman's butt from yeah. the forty year old version. And yes, when I say two songs from Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, I am including I Love Boobies. And when I say two songs from uh, Eurovision, I am including Ya Ya Ding Dong. Like, this is this is obvious to me. This is, you know, clear as day. Yes. The song from Barb and Star that made me laugh the most is the uh, Some of My Friends from High School Have Recently Passed. <laughs> Which you get for like half a second, but it's just and like it's the concept of it still is still perfect, wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm... Uh, it and like the globe screwed over the 40 year old version they have comedy categories it's the best comedy of the year um yep. from netflix and granted like netflix had so much on their plate i don't think they did anything this year probably especially this year to dispel the fact that they can't handle releasing multiple major oscar contenders it's just they it, they don't they can't have like five best picture contenders and well i mean shows who can? out because movies you know like what i mean like screwed. it's i think in yeah other it's too much in well in other years too like where they could have this category it absolutely could have been an original screenplay nominee yeah um, the thing about the 40 year old versions uh oscar trajectory is that there was a moment where we all kind of got teased right where like the national border review comes out and it makes the nbr top 10 and gets another prize as well right it um, and then there were there was another top ten list that it showed up in, and now I want to look this up to make sure I'm not shortchanging it. But um, there was like a two week period there where the forty year old version shows up in a couple places, and I'm like, oh maybe maybe this is actually you know a kind of sideways contender towards some of these races, and then. I mean, we were all we were all clearly uh, hoping for too much with the Golden Globes, but uh, yeah, then it just sort of. Sorry, my internet's being slow. Mm. Just the story, um, and then right before the Oscar nominations come out, she gets a Best Actress nomination at BAFTA, and by then we had really all sort of like given up the ghost on an Oscar nomination. But it's just like, oh no, but BAFTA, like, and like thrilled for her 
that and she like, got... I'm leaning into original screenplay, not because I don't think that she shouldn't have been in consideration for director or actress, but because like right. that was the easiest get for them for this movie. Like there are a lot of analogs for movies like it that get an Oscar nomination for it, and like yeah, Netflix just whiffed on it. Like, but like in the realm, yeah, best uh uh. Top 10 films of the year, National Board Review, and then a Spotlight Award for Rada Blank uh, from the NBR. And that, like, for as much as, you know, the movie doesn't get any kind of Oscar nominations, but this is a really good award season for this movie, where there's just, like, Rada gets a bunch of awards. There's uh, Independent Spirit Award nomination. She wins Best Screenplay at the Gotham Awards while also being nominated for the audience award there bunch of critics awards uh like i said best first feature nomination at the independent spirit awards which are still to come like she could win that Mm -hmm. uh now i want to look and see what her competition is but like i still have some faith in the independent spirit awards uh first feature she's up against well sound of metal is a very big contender there Sound of Metal, Miss Juneteenth, I Carry You With Me, Nine Days, and then the 40-year-old version. I feel like she's probably running in second place right now, but the Spirit Awards, you know, sometimes throw you some curveballs, so you never really know. Maybe uh, if they, uh, people didn't pay to vote in those awards, uh, you know. Maybe if we like paid. votes for the Oscar contenders because they pay 90 bucks to vote in the Independent Spirit Awards, uh, maybe she would have a better chance. This is why we should pay 90 bucks so that we can put our votes. I uh, will forever look askance at uh, Indie Spirit uh, wins that I keep mirroring the Oscars because it's just people paying to vote for them. No, nope. I like the Indie Spirits. I like their nominees better than I like their winners. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you're right. I think the nominees definitely outpace the winners. You're totally right. Yep. Because those are, those are voted on by uh, uh, committees and juries. Yes. And... Yeah. More precursors should have juries. I think if BAFTA showed us anything this year, it's that juries make for less less utility as Oscar predictors, but much more interesting awards. And mm-hmm. if you're not going to be the Oscars, you shouldn't try to be the Oscars because there's no point. There's only the Oscars. You should be as quirky and different as you want to be. And, the, and uh, BAFTA did that really well this year. BAFTA did amazing. All right, moving right along to our next category, the fa- They Forgot to Notice It All Around Them Prize for Nearest Miss in honor of Collateral right. Beauty. What is the movie that uh, got closest to an Oscar nomination that you think? So I sort of had a little bit of a trouble with this one, especially because we've already talked about the little things, and I don't quite know how close Jared Leto did, but like we were all really, really anticipating it. I put the Mauritanian for this. Because perfect answer. This one also was just like end of the year. Jodie Foster wins the Globe, which again, the Golden Globes are much less valuable as a predictor, obviously, uh, especially after this year. Um, but momentum really seemed to be moving in the right direction for the film in, tar- uh, in itself. Beyond just Jodie Foster, I think Tahar Rahim's performance was really well received. I'm not. I would be really curious to see where that ended up on the list of Best Actor nominees. How how it's close also in the BAFTA Best Picture got. Five. Yeah, yeah. 
I think it was really, really building momentum. Having seen it, I don't entirely get it. It's not a bad movie, but it's also not a great movie. And it's also not a movie that, at least with me, doesn't really stick with you for too long after. When you're in it, it's um, the story of it. The story that it tells is a really interesting story. I don't think it tells it interestingly enough to stick with you as a film. But it was doing all the right things, and it was moving in all the right directions right up until the nominations. And I was, if not in supporting actress, I'm surprised it didn't show up somewhere. Right. Yeah. So. Um, I almost wondered, like, because Jodie Foster and Tahar Rahim are probably co-leads of that movie. Yeah. To me, it showed a sense of, like, opportunism with a supporting actress race that at least at one point felt way more in flux than I think it ultimately ended up being. Mm. And that's why they pushed her in supporting. Um, Because of supporting actor and how it kind of shaked out, I almost wonder if Tahar Rahim would have been a nominee if they had done the opposite. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean... Not that I'm saying (laughs) that they should because they shouldn't have run Jodie Foster in supporting either. But Clearly, that's the uh, type of momentum I think where the movie was yeah. going towards. I think I think you're right. I think you're right there. And clearly, you know, lead supporting designations matter less and less. Obviously, uh, this year really kind of uh, uh, just exploded that whole thing with uh, with little Keith Stanfield nomination for Judas and the Black Messiah. Which I'm bummed that that now has to be the narrative because it's a great performance. By a yeah, great I mean, I'm glad that Lakeith Stanfield is an Oscar nominee now. Me too. But it is insane that it's in supporting actor, especially with the both yeah. of them nominated, where it's like, I was fully on board with Daniel Kaluuya is absent for like 45 minutes of that movie. He's just not part of it. And if if that to you is, you know, enough to make him a supporting actor... I'm a, I can deal I can get with that. I'm pro I think it's really borderline. And I, mean, I didn't really have a problem. His movie with. are his movie, but I do ultimately think that Lakeith Stanfield is the protagonist lead yes. of that movie. It's, he is the lead of that movie. And if you were going to if you're going to make the try and make the case that like Lakeith is supporting, you can't also have Kaluuya supporting. Like one of them has right. to be the lead. It's just like that's And, and I, I know that, that that's not how people where... vote. There are no leads, really. I think Parasite is a good example of that. True ensembles, like, yes, yes. But that's not what this movie is. It's not. Um, it's a. It's a. It's 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 more a two lead movie than it is a no lead movie. Like it's closer to being a two lead movie than a no lead movie. Some of the times I get annoyed when people are just like, "Well, it's the two title characters," and it's like, "Y'all, sometimes a title character can be a supporting character. Like it is possible." It's sure. Like, I mean, like, there's there's a whole racist implication too that the two black actors are not considered leads of their movie. But I also yeah. wonder if it's kind of if there's an element to it where it's this is how the votes shook down, and there were a significant number of people voting for yeah. Daniel Kaluuya in lead as well, because like it's the craziest it's thing about Lakeith is. He wasn't considered a contender and lead actor either. Like in other times when this sort of thing has happened, this sort of lead supporting swerve with Keisha Castle Hughes, with Kate Winslet for the reader, they had been 
you know, getting a push in the other category. Like, they had been showing up in precursors, and they had been getting campaigned a lot. Whereas, like, you know, they campaigned Lakeith Stanfield as a lead actor in Mm -hmm. Judas and the Black Messiah on, like, press materials. But he was never really thought of within the realm of, you know, a best actor contender. And... It tells me that voters such a all had their own point of view on yes. who the lead of that movie is. Um, yeah. And, like, I, it could also be people were vote- passionate enough about Lakeith that they wanted to see him nominated. And yeah. lead actor was incredibly competitive. Um, to the point where, like, Delroy yes. Linto, who gives the best performance of the year, yep. couldn't yep. get arrested um, this season. Um, in terms of, like getting the hold on the season that he deserved. Um, Delroy Lindo and Carrie Coon should hold a live stream at the same time as the Oscars <laughs> and just do like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf together or something like that. Just something, I, the amount of money I would pay to see that. Um, right. Right. Just something competing with that just because they're the two, you know, such good performances and they should both be nominated and it's insane. Um, the other thing that I would say to like lead into maybe my second choice for this category about the Lakeith Stanfield nomination is that it shows me that probably both the fourth and the fifth spots were incredibly competitive because Paul Racy wasn't showing up places. So like, right. I, I don't just think it was like Lakeith in fifth. It could have been Paul Racy in fifth. Um, but I think that those last two slots were incredibly competitive to get and that yeah. like someone like Bill Murray could have been almost yeah. as close or someone like Aldous Hodge could have just been as close. Right. But, I mean, that's wishful thinking on my part. The Paul Racy nomination to me feels like it at least follows the trajectory that we've seen before of somebody who shows up in critics awards then is absent from the more, uh, the mm-hmm. bigger sort of precursors, your Globes and SAGs and BAFTAs and whatnot. I feel like Marsha Gay Harden and Pollock was that kind of a trajectory where she had gotten mm-hmm. some critics awards and then she was gone from the conversation and then came back at the end. And I feel like that's at least a familiar trajectory that I can sort of wrap my head around. Yeah. yeah. But I think like in terms of close misses, Bill Murray and unfortunately Jared Leto were probably very close. Yeah. Um, uh, what was I actually? <laughs> oh, no, honestly, um, my answer for this aside from that. So we're talking about a different um, awards race. I, this is probably where I would put first cow. Like, yeah, I think I've already seen a lot of talk about how uncompetitive that adapted screenplay category is. Um, won't be surprised if the father wins that um, over the Nomad Land. The Faja. Um, um, you know what Anthony Hopkins loves in that movie? What he loves gold. He does love gold. There he you loves go. Gold. Do you um, think? Wait, that's interesting that you say that. That you wouldn't be surprised if the father wins. I think you're. Uh, not wrong about that, but do you think Borat could win? And it's 25 no. nominees. No. No. You think it's The Father or Nomadland? Probably. Yeah. Um, we will see. It could be neither. Um, I think there's some people thinking that Nomad La- it's Nomadlands to lose simply because it has it's like the behemoth um, yeah. of the season. But so funny. So funny that Nomadland is the behemoth of the season. Again, if you had told me 
14 months ago. Like, gosh. (laughs) I just also think that for First Cow, like, in terms of not any nomination whatsoever, I would have to imagine it was a contender for multiple places. Production design, cinematography... You know, I, I'm, I'm I, still surprised that it didn't get the cinematography nomination because, um, and I get why Trial of the Chicago Seven is a cinematography nominee because sometimes a not. best picture contender, but sometimes a best picture contender just like gets craft nominations in places well, where Pope Michael is a previous yes. nominee. Yes, yeah, I think that I think that definitely plays into slur. it. Um, and I'm super glad that Sean Bobbitt got nominated for Judas and the Black Messiah. Like, that's fucking Finally. rad as hell. And, like, Darius Wolski, as I said, for News of the World, is very um, respected. It is no surprise at all that Mank is a cinematography nominee because it is very sort of, like, visual forward of a movie. And Nomadland got the nomination, the kind of nomination that I feel like First Cow really seemed perfect for, which is, it's a smaller movie, but it has these very sort of, uh, you know, pastoral, beautiful to look at, still kind of images and moments that they're, they're great. But even when they're sometimes not great in, during, in certain movies, the cinematography branch will go for them. We've seen sort of like, you know, in the past, right? Well, and the lighthouse in the previous year. Sure. Although the lighthouse had like lighthouse had great cinematography, like I love that, but like it's it's an element that that branch seems to go for, and mm-hmm. it's sort of a bummer that first cow couldn't even get that. Well, I mean, I do think a twenty four put their entire weight behind Minari. Um, they they kept first cow in the conversation for things, but like their focus mm-hmm. was on getting Minari as much as they did, and I think they're going to reap the benefit. Yes. of that continually we've already talked about how we think it has a real shot at best picture but yeah. i think i i think we would be having a different conversation about first cow i think it would have gotten a nomination somewhere we um, talked about this a little bit last year with neon i can't remember what was the other neon contender that we were just oh it was clemency uh, portrait a lady on fire right but wasn't clemency also neon clemency too yeah where I was sort of bitching for a while last year about how Alfre Woodard didn't get the campaign that I thought she deserved, and she didn't. But then I sort of, in that same thought, was just like, oh, right, Neon put all their chips on Parasite, and they were right to do so. And it worked out for them, and I'm glad that they did. So when it comes to these sort of indie distributors, like A24, it worked out for them with Minari, and I'm glad that they did it. And in a perfect world, Minari and First Cow would both be Best Picture nominees. But in a real world where, you know, assets are finite for these indie uh, companies and you really have to make some decisions as to what you're going to focus on, they made the right decision and I'm glad that they did. All right, let's keep us moving. Uh, Our next prize is the Where's My Damn Picasso prize (laughs) for the most forgettable movie. God bless you, Cher. We love you. That we could do an episode on. Yes. Yes. Um, I think I jumped you in the line for the last one. So why don't you answer this one first? I mean, for me, it's a movie that I was mean to because I think I, whatever, I, this movie, uh, I, I don't like it. Um, that would be Supernova, the Stanley Tucci 
Colin Firth uh, gay dementia movie that is, um, I think I called it sponsored by Land's End. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. It, I haven't just seen a it very, yet. very thin movie that, like, I think wants you to project whatever you want onto it while giving you absolutely nothing yeah. um, in terms of characterization, in terms of emotional depth. It's just this kind of not even blunt tool, but just like, yeah, I don't know. It It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like, uh, having a house with just like the posts and no walls. Like that's what that movie is. Um, it's, it's a interesting. Candle movie. It's a man candle movie, you know, I like candle movies. I do. Yeah. It's like tears on my beard is the scent <laughs> of that candle. <laughs> I think it's interesting that we've reached a point where, and I don't think we maybe, I don't think it's that we just reached this point because um, I think of a movie like Freeheld from a few years ago that really sort of like Uh came and went very quickly um, with big movie stars playing gay characters. I think it's interesting though that Supernova and Ammonite both really sort of disappeared from the awards conversation almost as soon as they showed up there. And I know that at the very least Ammonite has its supporters out there. I haven't seen either one of these two movies yet. They're both on my list. My list is long. Um, Ammonite had more build up too. like it was can selected, you know, we'd been paying yeah. attention to it because of the actresses and the director. Right. But I think with both of the, I think the fact that both of those movies are, gay love stories with very, very prominent uh, actors, all of them former Oscar nominees, two of them former Oscar winners. And that just that is not unique enough anymore, which I think in one way speaks to that, you know, we are getting more and different slowly, but surely queer films out there, not enough still, but like more and just the fact of two big movie stars playing queer isn't, you know, juice enough to get it into better awards converse, uh, contention without it being something that people are really flipping out over. And mm-hmm. that's probably that's a good, good sign, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. That's what. That's sort of what I was thinking. Yes. My choice for this... I don't know. Ammonite, Ammonite, I'm I'm interested to revisit um, simply because, like, it's a love story, but the way that movie functions really isn't. It's more about a specific type of character and how they may want to exist within a love story without, you know, saying too much because you haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's definitely something I want to see soon. Uh, Maybe even in the next couple of days. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, my initial choice for this seems like an odd one, but I'll ha- I have I have a backup to this once I get past this part. But like, relative to what your expectations would be, I think it's remarkable how quickly we all got past the prom. I don't think it did well for Netflix. Is the thing? I think Netflix I think that's kind of let us. But but even but we've had like I mean 
Cats was a bomb too. Although Cats had the rowdy screening thing, which like makes it harder to talk about that movie as a theatrical thing. But like, it's just really interesting that like for a couple of days there, uh, James Corden had to go in hiding because there were, you know, uh, armies of people searching for him to arrest him and send him to the Hague. And just the rest of the movie, just there was, you know, the, the, the furor that you would have expected for the film and then within a couple weeks it was just like moved on to the next thing and nobody yeah it was no tale about to that it. movie before it was even on netflix and then when right. it was it was pretty quiet i watched it on like new year's day morning and by then i was like a week or two beyond the point where anybody was talking about it and I remember being like, it's not even worth tweeting about it because like everybody's fully moved on. And like every once in a while, somebody will say Zaz, but like that's basically it. It's really, and I wonder if it's like, is it a Netflix thing? Is it a 2020 slash 2021 thing? Is it the fact that like we just have so many other, you know, fish to fry on, you know, so many levels in our lives? But like whatever well, the right reason. right after it, they had much, uh, much more like splashier premieres. They had Ma Rainey right after it. They even had Malcolm and Marie, um, right. which Malcolm right. and Marie people have kind of dealt with in the same way of the prom that like people are, are just moving past that movie. Um, but that one at least is more, I, that to me makes more sense. It's a small movie. It's, it didn't really have a ton of fanfare going in. It sort of like snuck up on people in the last month or two of the year. Whereas like the prom is a big ass, like hugely a list cast Ryan Murphy adaptation of a Tony nominated musical. Like, well, it's, and it's also really like, surprising. it's actually a movie that's targeted towards teens. And like, that's probably really like it, because of the cast it has, like, yes, you could see, like, awards voters or, like, more sophisticated voters at least checking in. Not sophisticated, but um, uh, more like uh, people who go to see things like Doubt, you know, still checking right. into the prom. Or even, like, Mamma Mia, people who just want to have a good time. But I think right. ultimately when you watch the movie, the prom is for teenagers. And, like, you didn't really see teens talking about the prom. Here's the thing. We got to stop making things for teenagers because teenagers aren't watching anything. Like, unless it's on, you know, it, they're not watching anything with on Netflix. They're not in, watching anything that you require an attention span for. And if they're going to find it, they'll find it in their own time. But, like, trying to cater to that or prepare for that or find think that you are somehow foolhardy enough to think you can triangulate what teenagers are going to watch stop trying because all you're doing is barking up wrong trees and you look foolish, you know, doing it. Whereas mm -hmm. just like, just make movies for literally everybody else, literally everybody else. And if the teens find it, they'll figure it out and they'll find a way to like, you know, do they don't their want own to be thing with it to. or whatever. Right. Exactly. So it's just like, you just give up on that demographic. Like it sounds stupid. It sounds like you're throwing away your future, but in some ways it's just like, there's no, there's no predicting it. I don't. I don't understand how. I, if I'm so glad I'm not in the business of having to predict what will sell to teenagers, because like <laughs> genuinely, who the fuck knows? I do understand you choosing that as most forgettable, like in relation to right what it is. My real choice is land because, like, 
it's it really just doesn't seem like it's it ever second really movie existed. about uh um a woman going off to be alone right. with the word land in its title but like even among in the realm of movies that like are the similar themed quasi invisible you know cousins to big oscar nominated films your you know infamous to capote you know that's kind of thing lands relation to nomadland is just it's just infinitesimal it's just so tiny and not a thing and nobody really saw it and nobody made a case for why you should be seeing it and it's almost feels unfair to pick it in that because it's just like it was never a thing and it's not a surprise that it's forgettable because its release was so so small but you know there we have it right it was one of those things that because they put it at the very end of the awards calendar for what it is it probably never had a chance to begin with um right i seemed to most people are like uh who cares and i at least you know enjoyed my time with it or thought my time with it was worthwhile even if like that seems wither it's not withering it's just like i think that there was a ceiling on how yes i agree impactful that movie would be it's it's worthwhile it's like 90 minutes um but like as far as an awards movie it's not yeah yeah okay our final question joe what is your jellical choice the movie that you think we should do an episode on first all right i had two i'm gonna give one and then after yours if you don't uh, also have one of mine then i'll uh, throw in my runner-up <laughs> um there's of the two one i'm looking forward to because i think i will have a lot of fun and one i'm looking forward to because i really just want to like unload on a movie and it's more fun to do the former than the latter so i really even though the buzz on this is like maybe the most tenuous of anything on this list i want to do an episode on wild mountain time and you can't stop me <laughs> i really really want to that I still haven't seen the movie, and I'm going to wait to see the movie until we do our episode on it. I still have my physical screener of it. Ah! I will. I, I'm going to keep it so that I watch it on that because I want the extra laugh of when I do finally watch that movie, seeing for your consideration and blazed on it. Absolutely, that you're right to do so. I just from everything I've heard about it, it sounds both bad and yet like delightfully absurd and like i'm totally into that and now after barb and star i'm like all the more fascinated with jamie dornan and i yeah i'm just i don't even want to go into it too much because i want to preserve the experience of wild mountain time for when we do the episode on it i'm obsessed with these people that were like jamie dornan supporting actor for barb and star when i felt like i was watching that movie and i felt like Oh, Jamie Dornan thinks he's slumming it. Jamie Dornan is miserable making Oh, I didn't, I don't think he was having fun. I like, did not get it that It still sense. is great. Despite. I think everything in Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar is in service of the film, and that includes all the performances. So to me, it does seem a little odd to single out performances and like beyond like Wig and, and uh, Mamalo... I guess, but like even though their performances are just so much in service to the whole that like, it's hard for me to separate, separate out pieces. But I do, I do feel like Jamie Dornan is maybe a little mystified. I don't know if Jamie Dornan fully understands the humor of it, but like 
I, I, like, if I were making that movie and I didn't really get a chance to see the whole of it, I'd probably be a little bit confused too. But I think he's going for it. And I, and I like that. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Wild Mountain Time is absolutely a movie that we need to do an episode on. And honestly, like, that wouldn't be a bad first episode because yeah. what is Wild Mountain Time? There are probably people listening to this episode right now not knowing what it was, but like the week of people actually watching and writing about that movie was one of the most joyous times during COVID. And I also feel like we wouldn't have to talk about COVID to talk about that movie. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. What is your pick? I mean, my truest answer, the one that I think we should do an episode on first, that it would make a good episode like with a lot to talk about would be the little things. Um, I see. But because we, I've already provided that as an answer, I would probably say Ammonite. I mean, Ammonite makes all the sense in the world for us to do that. But the little things would be the best episode. Uh, I just like having to watch it again (laughs) is such a bummer. To think if about. I could watch it again with the intentions of like what we do here and like yeah. pick it apart and we could have some fun at that movie's expense. Yeah. Rather than watching it the first time, which was like, I have to seriously watch this because I have to seriously consider this. Yeah. Two different things. Two different things. Two different things. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, no, but like Ammonite, like, it's the classic, it's a classic this had Oscar Buzz pick. My other one that I thought of was Malcolm and Marie because I think right. it's an interesting story. We could talk about Zendaya and like she's a really interesting performer to talk about right now and it's such a loathsome movie to me that I really I at least feel like I could get a whole head of steam about it and it would probably be maybe not the most fun episode to listen to just because it's me just like ranting and raving about what a like ridiculous screenplay that thing is and how many Well, I'd be less likely to pick that one just because I feel like that movie already has been completely picked apart. I agree with um, that. And I think it would be impossible to talk about it for our purposes without talking about COVID. Um Oh, you think more so than the other and the movies? pandemic? Yeah, because it was the way it was shot, the way that it was released, yeah. like yeah. the whole like bidding war that happened over the movie. Um, yeah, I think that's a movie that's probably been sufficiently picked apart enough. I mean, like I maybe didn't hate it as much as everybody did. It was just a really like even when it makes some salient points throughout that I think are worthwhile, I still felt like leaving that movie, I just watched a guy scream at his girlfriend for two hours. Yes, um, you did. Spoiler, you did. Yeah. Um, oh, I hated it. I hated... I, I and, and I saw it a few weeks after the furor of it happened. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to get the bounce off of this. I'm going to get the... I was really oversold on how terrible it is. It can't be that bad. And then I watched it and I'm just like, oh my God, like I'm absolutely furious at this movie for subjecting me to that, to just sort of the rantings and ravings of somebody who's pissed about like three different things about his movie making career and decided to cloak it all in this, you know, this black character so that they can, you know, be self-righteous about things that, and you're talking the, about Sam Levinson. Yeah, I'm talking about Sam filmmaker. Levinson. Who like has no, you know, no right to that uh brand of self-righteousness. It's huh, 
Whatever. Yeah, you're right. It's been talked over. But maybe in a year or two, it won't be. So, who knows? There'll be uh, more that comes out about the movie. A couple of movies that we haven't really talked about that I feel like we maybe should just touch on briefly. Yeah, Um, we can run through the rest of the list. You liked I'm Thinking of Ending Things more than I did. The further I got away from it, the less I, that was probably i watched it again and i was like this is maybe a one and done movie i don't really need to watch this a lot like i think a lot of other people um enjoyed figuring out where they were on it and i had yeah. like a really succinct like i got everything out of it that i needed to the first time i figured out what it was doing for me the first time and then when i revisited i was like okay well maybe i feel like it's because i feel like i get it not i'm not like patting myself on the back for that but like it's just not working for me as much uh now that i feel like i've untangled its mess right um though i do still think that like that should have gotten more than it did i absolutely think that should have been a makeup nominee uh i think jesse plemons and jesse buckley are great in it don't think tony collette's great in it once i watch i I actually really liked Tony Collette the one time that I saw it. I, I was frustrated with almost everything else. It bums me out that I am not on the Jesse Buckley train with everybody else because everybody else seems to be having a really, really great time on that train, enjoying the, you know, cocktail car and, you know, mingling and chatting and whatever. And I remain uh, <laughs> just a little, you know, outside of that whole realm, which is too bad for me. And that's what matters um yeah i mean predictably charlie charlie kaufman movies much as i think he's an incredible talent and i've loved certainly many of the films that he's written obviously eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is one of my favorite movies ever i think unadulterated charlie kaufman where he's not really uh you know leavened by another creative influence tends to be a lot for me um, even something like Synecdoche, New York, which I find beautiful in bits and pieces, is oppressive to me as a whole. And I know that's partly the point, but also I really hated the experience of watching it. Um, I didn't really like Anomalisa at all. Yeah, me either. And I respect I, like the the artistry of the animation in that movie, yes. but I ultimately I think it's a wank. Yeah, and that's, I think, where I came down with I'm Thinking of Ending Things, too. Um, Again, I'm happy for the people who got a lot out of it. uh, It was was not my thing. Uh, We briefly talked about On the Rocks, which, like, I definitely think should have gotten more uh, attention as a screenplay. I really like On the Rocks. I think it got really dismissed immediately as, like, the weakest Sofia Coppola movie. I think there's more going on in it than people give it credit for. I remember enjoying it when I watched it and then didn't really think about it very much after the fact. Um, But I liked it. I liked the experience of watching it. I really liked Bill Murray. I thought Bill Murray was really, really uh, kind of a delight in that movie. I didn't love Rashida Jones as much. I sort of had found myself wishing it was another actress in that role. And I like her in other things. So it's not like I just like, don't like her, but I, there were moments in that movie where I wish it was somebody else doing doing more with that role. But I enjoyed my experience watching On the Rocks. And of course, I love Sofia Coppola in general. 
I liked Rashida Jones in that movie. It's funny to me that this is the first time we're mentioning French Exit on this episode because yeah. like, French Exit is probably like third place for all of the for a lot of the categories we mentioned. And like I do probably think Michelle Pfeiffer was still close. I think it's just Sony Classics. Maybe they put most of their effort behind the father, but like if their movies existed at all and like a lot of people were saying the father is a movie that uh is seemingly real um before the nominations happened and like i didn't quite feel that way because i'd seen it a while ago but like i get why people say that like and french exit especially um because like its release is going to be six months after it played new york festival yeah um so i'm curious to revisit it it's French, it's one of those things that's diminished in my mind too. Yeah, French Exit's a movie I really liked at the time. Although even like my experience of watching it, I it was a real journey to liking it. I think by the end I sort of surprised myself with with coming out of it liking it because that wasn't the case for the entire running time of it. I was surprised that Pfeiffer was getting the early buzz that she was getting, not because she wasn't great because she is, and she always is, but like, especially in that movie, she's really, really good, but it's such, even for people who liked that movie, it makes you work to like it. And it is not on its face, a a likable film. And those are always going to be hard sells with Oscar, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, in that kind of a genre. And I was always surprised that she sort of stayed in the race as long as she did, because I can't imagine too many Oscar voters in the midst of all the other screeners that they're sitting down with, sitting down with French Exit and being sort of, you know, captivated by it or, or delighted by it. I still think Valerie Mahaffey... Its problems are real problems. Like, yeah. there's whole characters that do not need to be in there. Yeah. Um, it gets kind of maudlin in a way that, like affected me like i was on the wavelength of the movie even though i could also at the same time feel it pushing really hard for me to feel that way yeah i still am super super psyched that valerie mahaffey got an independent spirit award nomination for supporting actress she's incredible (laughs) i loved her in that and i was just like this is one of those things that i love her but nobody like she doesn't stand a chance anywhere else and the only place that she would have stood a chance was the Independent Spirit Awards, and they gave her that nomination. And I was very happy yeah. about that. So yeah. there was that. Uh, moving along to the way back, Ben Affleck's uh, football coach movie. This was a movie that, like, I'm still shocked that it got as much, like, leeway with critics as it did. I thought it was bad. I did, too. Um, Some of it is maybe a hang-up for me that I'm like, it's a sports thing that, like, I don't understand why we're supposed to root for this man screaming at these children just because that's what a coach is. Like, I I could not get past that. I was like, this is just, he's just screaming at these kids. Like, I don't think it's enough of a sports movie to be like, to to get me captivated by the sports moviness of it all, it needs to be more of a sports movie. It wasn't. It was. And it's pretty basic as far as the things about it that are not sports. And that's what surprised me that people were giving him, Affleck, I mean, a lot of credit for that. And I'm just like, it's really going through the paces of like a dozen movies I've seen before. Mm Mm-hmm. Gone Girl is metacasting for Ben Affleck that really works and improves the movie, and this is not that. 
Yeah. Um, it's like meta casting that is very facile. Yeah. Um, what else haven't we talked about? We kind of talked about The Invisible Man. We disagree on that movie. Yeah. Palm Springs is something that at one point felt like could have been uh, an original screenplay nominee. It's good that it got the Globe's attention because so someone could pay attention to it, but they didn't nominate Kristen Malati. Which is um, too bad because she really movie. deserved it. She really deserved that nomination. She's really wonderful in that movie. I would have really liked a screenplay She's... nomination for Palm Springs. I think it's a really – it was, again, the last movie I saw in a theater. Um, I really, really loved it. And just the experience of it, I think it was just like a really a fun movie that felt – satisfying at the same time and i look back and i'm just like man i didn't know how good i had it and um yeah i've been looking forward to revisiting it i haven't really had enough time to rewatch kind of anything this year but that's definitely at the top of my list in terms of movies to rewatch just because i had such a good time with it the first time i didn't love it but i did really think krista malati was great um Next movie, Personal History of David Copperfield. I was the jerk about this movie, though, like, I'm still not surprised that it didn't get nominated, even though, like, if it was a costume nominee, it it might be deserving. I'm a little Um, surprised it didn't get a costume nomination. I guess it didn't really have a lot of buzz elsewhere, so, like, I guess I can't be too surprised. And, like, if it was that movie or Emma... Um, I'm not, I like Emma's got Alexandra Byrne costumes and looks amazing. So like, I'm not surprised Mm -hmm. there, but like, again, did we need Pinocchio as an Oscar nominee? No, we didn't. (laughs) And so, you know, Copperfield could have gone there and I would have been happy because again, I'd already seen David Copperfield. So I wouldn't now have to see another movie. Fucking watch Pinocchio. Fucking Pinocchio. I know. Um, King of Staten Island, the early talk of Pete Davidson. I think we can all agree that that was not real. I'm still um, amazed that we got out of a Golden Globes without getting him nominated. I'm very happy about that, but kind of surprised. So good yeah, for us. Speaking for- of Golden Globes, I care a lot. That was something that of the, at least at that time surprise globe wins that was the one i was like that's not going to be an oscar nominee sure well and again and it was in musical or comedy so like those ones have less of a expectation that it's going to translate well and i think because she beat pfeiffer and bakalova people thought for a second that that sure sure be something but then i think they watched the movie and they were like oh right no she's an incredibly talented actress and she works in that like terrifying American woman of the present day milieu really. And well, um, I do like that. Her take on playing American is just to be like scary as fuck, like cool. Um, (laughs) I did not enjoy the experience of watching. I care a lot. And even in a way that like, I knew going in that it was going to be dark and I knew that it was going to be um, mean. And I was all ready for all of that. And even given that I was my, my main takeaway from I care a lot was you have this really kind of fascinating concept of that. There is this process in the world where people are taking advantage of 
you know, loopholes and uh, insufficiencies in the legal system and in the healthcare system to do some really, really like shady shit and, you know, harm people's lives. And I'm like, this is fascinating. And if you're going to give me this and with this, you know, amoral character who's going to be my main character, cool. I am up for this challenge. Why then do you take pains to set up this premise and then turn it into I've got to fight for my life from this mobster movie, which again, I've yeah, seen becomes a, a kick-ass billion movie. of those. Um, Why do I want to watch this movie? Yeah. It's, it, it's it just like, it didn't feel like it, it had confidence like in its own satire, um Not even anti-hero, but just like despicable character that you, yes. is like a fun performance from a performer you like. Like it doesn't have to become haha, violence is funny no. type of movie. Right. And also it's just like, again, like, oh, like you set up this premise and then it's like you almost get scared of it because it's like, well, we got to throw in like, what if she runs afoul of a mobster? And then that's where, yeah. you know, it's like, it's my thing. And I always are up... shooting oxygen, oxygen tanks. And yeah, I always, I always bring up and that's a punchline. I mean, yeah, I always bring up three men and a baby in this context. And I think three men and a baby ultimately is, you know, that's a movie that works. Um but it did. It always feels funny to me that there is a drug smuggling subplot in the middle of Three Men and a Baby that, like, the movie fully gives itself over to for about twenty five minutes. And it's just like, did you not think that the idea of three single men in New York raising a baby was a strong enough concept that you needed to like throw in a drug smuggling subplot for some of this because we were gonna, you know, we were gonna lose our attention? It always seems so silly to me that that's in that movie. And I think about that a lot when other movies seem to lose their nerve and like throw in something really, really basic, like a mobster subplot in a movie where and this isn't even a subplot in I Care A Lot. Like, this is just like we're just going to hand our entire movie over to this gangster uh, plot. And it, it just lost me. It just fully lost me. Yeah. Uh, I guess to wrap up, the next movies are like the like critically acclaimed ones, the ones that we would be uh, more reticent unless we could like have a good conversation about the awards race because we don't want to be like throwing egg on the face of some of these movies. Agreed. Um, never, rarely, sometimes, always, I really felt at a certain point that it was going to be a screenplay nominee, and then it just feels like it really hit a wall yeah um and eliza hitman posted like some of the emails she got from oscar voters which like some people were aghast and surprised at and i'm like i'm not surprised that there's people in the academy that would send her nasty emails um because of their beliefs um yeah like i i don't have the illusion that they are all on the right side of politics um right that's a movie that we both kind of didn't embrace as much as everybody else. I feel like for me, that is foremost a directing achievement. Um, though when I watched it again, I liked it a little bit more. Did you? That was not the movie to watch early in the pandemic. And right. Expect to... I appreciate the nerve of Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I appreciate the unflinchingness of some of its scenes. I think the scene that everybody talks about, which is the one that the movie gets its title from, is justly praised as being incredibly... Um, 
bracing and unflinching. And the fact that it's a movie that takes on this subject matter of a girl having to cross state lines to go get an abortion because their the health system fails these girls time and again um, is a, a good and it sounds stupid to say courageous, but courageous a story and necessary story to tell. I almost consistently throughout the movie with again, exceptions like the scene that I talked about found myself less impressed with both the filmmaking and the performances. And I know the performances were like really, really highly regarded, but I think the movie really relies on silence and stillness in a way where like at some point I started to get diminishing returns on what the silences of this movie could communicate to me. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. This is why I think it's more of a directing achievement um, than like a a performance one for me. Um, Even though like this is the most I've liked an Eliza Hitman movie, I should say. Like I think, and I've seen all of her movies, they all kind of, rely on a certain amount of projection onto the characters and assuming certain things or like bringing your own uh history or your own baggage that you can it almost feels like her movies are designed to have that and maybe if that works for some people that's fine for me i want to know who some of these people are and like it works best for never rarely sometimes always because it's so fiercely political that like part of the point is we shouldn't have to know specifics to um to like be on the side of this girl and like i'm already on the side of this girl before i watch the movie so like i guess that works a little bit less for me but like the amount to which i feel like we are asked to project our own feelings or our own experiences sometimes even i definitely felt that with beach rats for like these characters that aren't don't really feel like complete people to me yeah um that's something i struggle with with her movies though yeah there's a i was impressed by a lot of this movie yeah um the next one which i feel like fully got ignored and part of it is because like this movie came out in january like well enough before the pandemic that by the time the pandemic hit it had kind of left theaters right the assistant which I loved The Assistant. I thought The Assistant was really fantastic. Um, Julia Garner's performance, I wish, had shown up more places. Mm -hmm. Um, I think both of us really loved the Matthew McFadden performance. One scene wonder kind of a performance in that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Really fantastic. The way those performances, like, impact each other. um, Yeah. I was so blown away by. But this is, again, I talk about the way that perspective shifts. When this movie came out, we didn't think we were going to be shut down for a year. And so we looked at that movie through the lens of, oh, this is a really good, really small movie that doesn't really have an awards future because it's really small. But we can praise it and sort of talk about like the best movie you've not heard of or whatever. And it gets sort of put into that box Whereas if it had been released in June or September, do you know what I mean? We would have been looking at it mm-hmm. differently. And I again, does it get Oscar nominations? Still probably not, I guess. But you never know. It maybe I mean, shows up a, more places. It's a pretty 
um, I don't want to say grueling, like it's hard to watch, but like that movie holds you in a vice for 90 yes, minutes. It does. Um, and it's it incredibly well made. Um, I'm really excited to see whatever Kitty Green makes after this. Um, I absolutely agree. Yes, totally. We talked about the nest both in this episode a little bit, but then also we talked about it in our All the King's Men episode, which I can't remember which one of these two comes out first, Chris. <laughs> Whichever gets edited first, probably. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so if we've already talked about The Nest on our All the King's Men episode, um, we'll just say it again. This movie fucking rules. And while it doesn't entirely surprise me that this didn't get latched onto, because it is a movie that, works to confound the audience a little bit, both on a story level and a genre level. I really, I, I, I don't think I'm alone in not realizing when this movie takes place for a little while in this movie. I think it's supposed to keep you a little bit in the dark in terms of what exactly kind of a movie you're watching. And I think it is very mm-hmm. intentionally mimics the beats and the rhythms and the moods of a ghost story. Like a lot of this movie reminded me of the others while I was watching it. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that's accidental. I think Sean Durkin is really, really talented at taking non horror stories and presenting them as horror stories, as commentaries. I mean, like Martha Marcy May Marlene almost plays like a slasher movie. Um, 100%. Including like there's one scene where like Maria Dizia shows up on in frame and it's like a jump scare. And that is not a that is not a movie that you would think it would have a jump scare in it. But like it's I think he's incredibly talented. And I said, if Sean Durkin ever decides to just legitimately make a horror movie, it's over for us hoes because like he's going yeah, to be the scariest movie ever. Like exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. I also think the nest is and maybe this is why it leaves a lot of people cold. I think it's a movie that's not necessarily interested in being conclusive or um, like spoon feeding you how to feel about uh, the journey these people go on with like their relationship to like uh, wealth climbing and privilege. Yes. And yes. Uh, I think that's pretty rare these days. And it was in a way that like I I think there is at least like satisfying conclusion that it uh, provides like as a story, but like doesn't tell you how to think about its themes um, in a way that I find really complex. And I think comes alive in Carrie Coon's performances in ways that are just like so exciting to watch. Yes. Well, and again, for a movie that is um, decently challenging it also rewards you with things like Carrie Coon being drunk and amazing in a restaurant or dancing to Don't Leave Me This Way. Carrie Coon dancing in a disco to Don't Leave Me This Way. Like, for God's sake, it is just like there are moments of pure pleasure that are speckled through this movie that, like, is meant to leave you a little bit off balance. And oh, mm-hmm. God, it's so good. Oh, my God. I'm broken record, but it's so good. Yeah. Uh, another one that, like, I wonder with this one if they had had a larger distributor, if this could have gotten further. And that's Miss Juneteenth, who mm. I love Nicole Bahari in this. Like, second only to Carrie Coon this year in terms of lead actresses' performances for me. Um, it's like, it felt a lot like if a Sony Classics had had it and they could have made like a June Bug situation um, for Nicole Bahari. Um, it's harder to do that with a lead God performance. 
but uh, yes. writer director. Yeah. It's harder to do that, I think, with a lead performance than like with what June Bug was able to do with a supporting performance for Amy Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, I am incredibly encouraged by the fact that it did get four uh, Independent Spirit Award nominations, uh, won the Gotham Award for Best Actress for Nicole Bahari. Uh, if this movie uh, does nothing else but sort of launch Nicole Bahari into a, her next big role, it will have been a worthwhile success. I think that mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of that's the function that it would have performed in a regular year anyway, right? Where it's like it's a small indie movie, but it puts Nicole Bahari on the radar of people who are making movies. And hopefully, you know, knock on wood, and we know that like the opportunities for actresses of color are not as plentiful as they should be. And hopefully the added attention that Miss Juneteenth got in a COVID year was able to, you know, give her more of a boost. Mm-hmm. Really good movie. Anything really else you want to throw in the ring as I mean, we talked about a lot of movies. Movie. Yeah. Like, we talked Way about, like, more than over... I thought we would be able to. Exactly. Again, we kept being like, do we have enough movies to do a class of 2020? And now again, it's like 25 movies I'm looking at. It's just like, okay, all right, we did. We had enough. Um, <laughs> I think it's a really great set of Oscar nominees that we got is the other thing I just want to say. I think it's a, you know, quibble here and there. Yes. But I think on balance, I think it's a really great slate of Oscar nominees. And I'm glad that in such an odd year that it resulted in in good things for good movies. And hopefully all these movies are very available. That's the other thing for as much as people sort of like whined a little bit about, you know, movies that weren't opening until the end of February being Oscar nominees and not really to my eye, not really considering the the fact that like calendar, it would have fallen under a normal year. Exactly. Oscar nominations and when the ceremony was and what would be right. A February movie this year was a November movie in a regular year. Like it's fine. This is how it works. But like now that all these nominations are available, like with the exception of, I think really the father and weirdly now because of HBO Max's dumb little, uh, theatrical window rule. Now Judas and the Black Messiah is not available to stream yet uh, because it uh, its little um, availability mm-hmm. window ran out like on the day of the Oscar nominations, which is dumb. If this but, isn't out by then, The Father is available um, on the 26th, I believe, right. of March. But everything else, you can go and watch somewhere now, like today. So... Take advantage of that because it's a really, really great slate of nominations and they're almost all there for the taking in almost all of the categories. It's still really hard to find the foreign language film nominations nominees, but like other than that, just like find these things because they're really, really good movies. And also Hillbilly right. Elegy. <laughs> <laughs> the and none for Gretchen Wieners of this year. Right. So glad we don't have to the, uh it, it that's the weird thing of this year that I'm like, do I want to have to watch? I knew I would eventually have to watch it either for this or for the movie. So it's like, do I want to have to watch it again and then spend two hours of my life dissecting this movie? It's going to be the last thing. It it's going to be the last thing that I see for my ranking. It's going to be the I'm, I'm deciding it now. I'm making it the last thing that I see. All right. Well, then there you go. There we go. 
All right. I think that is our bonus episode. If you want yeah. more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you. Twitter, first of all, at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. Letterboxd, for second of all, uh, Joe Reed spelled the exact same way. Cool. I'm also on Twitter at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, including Spotify. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So make it clear because they have to see it. We are always here. You can make them see it. Our podcast. Our podcast. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Stream Pacific on Spotify. Stream Pacific.